begin our, our scripture reading this morning will be from Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. And they're writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is recorded for us. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was the angel of multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, on an earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Merry Christmas to all of you. If you would turn with me in your Bibles once again to Luke chapter 2. We'll start out there. We're going to work our way through Scriptures and end in the end of the book, Revelation. So um, we've got a little Bible uh, travel ahead of us this morning. So we'll start out in Luke 2. And what a joy it is when we get to celebrate our Lord's birth on the Lord's Day. And so it, it, it is a joy. I know it, sometimes we can see that it might be an inconvenience because of all the, the things that we have going on for the, the holiday and everything. But what a joy to gather around um, our Lord Jesus, to worship Him, to um, give Him the glory that's due His name, the Lamb of God. And that's what we're talking about today. Worship the Lamb. Luke 2 is a glorious and true story of our Savior's birth. In verse 19, as we read just a little bit ago, we see how Mary treasured these things in her heart. She pondered them. She gave some time over the years to think deeply, to reflect deeply on what, what do these things mean? Why was her child born in this region of Israel? And if he is so significant, why was he born in a stable? Why was he visited by shepherds? 
And why did those shepherds bring news that they had been visited by angels who worshipped God because of her baby's birth? Mary likely was one of the witnesses, eyewitnesses, that Luke referred to in the first two verses of his book, of his gospel. The people that he went to, he sat down with, when he researched and gathered information to put together into what would become the Gospel of Luke and then also the book of Acts. Like the apostles, Mary wouldn't figure all of this out until Jesus had ascended and sent the Holy Spirit. But we can look back. We can understand what she and the apostles later came to realize. So in answer to those ponderings of hers, Jesus was born in this region in Bethlehem because He was from David's royal line. And so it was fitting that He's born in Bethlehem, the city of David, as Luke tells us here. We saw last week that Jesus is the Lamb of God, so it was fitting for Him to be born in this region around Bethlehem where many, many of the lambs that were sacrificed in the temple were raised. They were raised there in that area, so it's fitting. Likewise, for Him to be visited by shepherds, for Him to be born in a stable, He is the Lamb of God. But what about the worship? What about the worship? The shepherds came and told Mary that We were visited by angels, angels from heaven. And they worshipped when they told us about your child, Mary. And their worship was contagious. Because when the shepherds got to see Jesus, they worshipped as well. Godly worship is stirred by truth. We learn that from all of the Scriptures. It's not just an emotional feeling that we get But whatever feelings we have in worship are part of what's being stirred in us by truth. And we want to notice first off here, what truth was it, truths, did the angels contemplate that prompted them to worship God? And while they were worshiping God the Father here, I think they were also worshiping God the Son. If you think about it, they knew this baby was God the Son, that they had worshipped their whole existence in heaven. So prior to Jesus being born, they they had already worshipped God the Son. And here now He's born of Mary. He's taken on human flesh. And so I think that they too had worshipped Him. So... God's worship, as I said, was stirred by truth. And what the angels did is they told the shepherds that someone significant had been born this day in nearby Bethlehem. And and so let's look at that in Luke 2, verse 11. They said, For today in the city of David... There has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. First, I want to talk about... They use three titles, names for Jesus there. 
And that's the truth that prompted them to worship. The first one I want to talk about is the word Christ, or that's from the Greek, the Greek word for Messiah. And so it was, it was Christos, Christ. And so uh, the anointed one. And they said that this is the one the Jews had been waiting for for so long, that had been prophesied, promised in the Old Testament. That was not entirely surprising, although it was surprising that he was born so humbly. Another matter of truth that prompted their worship is that they called him Lord. That was probably a bit surprising to the shepherds to hear that. Someone has been born in this region today, and he's Lord. And they would understand from that that he was the sovereign one that He is divine. He's the Lord. And surely they were puzzled by that. That, hmm, He's a human, a baby. And you're telling us He was born so humbly. And that was probably a little surprising. But He's sovereign, He's divine, He is God. Now, you know, we look back and all this is clear to us. But let's put ourselves in their place for a little bit and realize that it wasn't clear to them. This is not lining up in their heads. They're wrestling with it. And yet they're worshiping. And then that first word, name, that the angels gave to this one who had been born was going to be a bit surprising too. Savior. Because the Old Testament establishes for us, and they knew this, that Yahweh is the Savior. Think about Isaiah 43.3, where Yahweh Himself says through the prophet, I am Yahweh your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Okay, well, okay, but maybe there's another. Well, the Lord... Just a few verses down in Isaiah 43, in verse 11, he adds this, just to make sure you get the point. I am Yahweh, and there is no Savior besides me. Now, all of a sudden, God's holy angels have come out of heaven. They're talking to the shepherds, and they say that this one that I'm directing you to, to go see, and that we're in just a minute going to worship, is Savior. Huh. So, the one, Yahweh, who is the only Savior, is now allowing His angels to call this baby Savior. Okay. We can put all that together and understand that what they were saying is Jesus is Yahweh. The baby there in the stable born that day is Yahweh. He is one with Yahweh. They are one. And so Jesus, according to these angels, they show us that He's worthy of worship because He is Messiah. He is the Sovereign Lord, and He is the only Savior. But the idea of Lamb, which we've been working on last week and now this week, is only kind of hinted at here in Luke 2, because Jesus was born like a lamb, where the temple sacrificial lambs were being born, and he was born in a stable and so forth. So he's only that's only hinted at, and it's not really until John the Baptist would come, we saw last week in John one twenty nine, that he Jesus would be proclaimed, There's the Lamb of God. 
So it's only hinted at. But what we're looking at is how, how this term develops into a major identity for Jesus. So we learned last week that Jesus is not just a lamb, but He is the lamb. In other words, He is the lamb with no equal. There is no other lamb that has ever been like Jesus. Jesus was able to... He's the only lamb able to take away our sin. You see, so He is the Lamb par excellence. Only He could take away our sin. And so, what we're driving at today is this. As the Lamb who takes away our sin, Jesus deserves our worship for all eternity. He deserves our worship for all eternity, forever and ever. And so that's going to be our journey today. To explore more reasons why Jesus, the Lamb, is worthy of our worship. So, to add to what we talked about last time, another reason why Jesus is worthy of our worship is because He, the Lamb, was slain for us. The Lamb was slain for us. Early in the life of the church... Uh, Philip encountered this Ethiopian eunuch. And you remember the story in Acts 8. And you remember what that man was reading when Philip met him. Anyone remember what he was reading? What text? Isaiah. And which chapter? 53. And he quotes verses 7 and 8. And so Philip comes up to him and he, and he asks him, he says, okay, I'm reading about this Man, it's a person who is, the prophet says, like a lamb before its shearers. So he's a lamb. But this chapter is sounds pretty brutal. He's going to die. He's going to die like this lamb who's just silent. And so he asked Philip, he's like, who is this? Who's Isaiah talking about? And I love what Luke says. says, So, beginning from this Scripture, Isaiah 53, Philip preached Jesus to him. I love that. What's his message? Jesus. He preached Jesus to him. He showed the man that Jesus is that Lamb of Isaiah 53 who by His death, again Isaiah 53, will take away our sin. As Isaiah said, He would bear, or He bore our sins, He carried them away from us. We saw last week that Jesus is the only Lamb able to take away our sin in referencing Hebrews 10, verse 4. None of those lambs that were born and sacrificed were able to take away our sin. They could only cover it temporarily, not take it away. And what the writer there in Hebrews 10 is talking about is a complete removal. This phrase, to take away, that word in Greek was also used in Luke 22, verse 50. And it's an interesting picture there. Because that's where, you remember, in the garden where Peter takes his sword out, they're going to arrest Jesus, and what does he do? He lops off that guy's ear. Okay? And it was a complete removal. Okay? And so that's why he used this word. 
And so the writer of Hebrews in verse chapter 10, verse 4, uses that same word to talk about taking away our sins. The sins that Jesus took away, would, they weren't just like, you know, He felt sorry for us or He sympathized with us only. Or he, he took our sins away from us just as that man's ear had been taken away from his head completely. This was a complete removal. This is what John would talk about in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. Jesus has released us from our sins by His blood. That idea of releasing us. He released us. He set us free from the guilt and the penalty that, of our sin that had held us captive, held us in bondage. And so, Jesus, by His blood, as the Lamb of God, released us from that. It's another reason why... Jesus is worthy. The Lamb, Jesus the Lamb, is unblemished and spotless. He is unblemished and spotless. Last week, again, we saw how the law demanded that any animal that was sacrificed to God in these burnt offerings, they had to be, remember, without defect. You didn't go out into your your flock and say, well, I'm going to keep the good ones for myself, you know, and I'm going to, here's a crippled one, I'm going to give that to the Lord. That, that didn't work. God said, no, absolutely not. It had to be without any defect. So Jesus, as the Lamb of God, had to meet that criteria as well. And we find... In 2 Corinthians 5.21, that Jesus knew no sin. In other words, He lived a sinless life. Jesus, the Lamb of God, was sinless, without sin. Uh, Hebrews 4.15, He was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. That Jesus had not sinned at all, ever. He was without blemish. That's what those lambs being without blemish, that's what the whole point of that is they were pointing toward this perfect Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, who would take away our sins, who would actually take it. And He would have to also be without blemish, meaning without sin. And so because of that, Peter could assure us that we were redeemed, and he says, with precious blood, blood that's of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. See, that's what we were redeemed with. That blood, not just any blood. It was not the blood of these baby sheep. This was from God's Son, His blood. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to spend a little bit of time here in Hebrews again. Hebrews chapter 9, we'll be looking here at verses 11 and 12. So Jesus, the... That spotless Lamb of God, Peter talked about, He redeemed us by shedding His blood, that precious blood that Peter said, he called it. So Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12. But when Jesus appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, in other words, the one in heaven, the one that the other was patterned after, a tabernacle, he says, not made with hands, that is to say it's not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, and we can add lambs, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. 
So when Jesus died on the cross, when He shed His blood on the cross, He accomplished, He obtained for us eternal redemption. And by virtue of His blood, the writer of the Hebrews tells us that, that Jesus then went into the heavenly temple, the greater temple, the one that was not made with human hands, that is there where God is. He entered that by virtue of His blood. And hang on to that. We're going to come back to that whole idea of entering that holy place, okay? But He calls the redemption that we have eternal redemption. What a beautiful concept. You see, it's not something that we can lose. We can't lose the redemption that He has accomplished for us. You see, He's already obtained it. He's accomplished it. It's already done. And it was really done, not in theory. It was really done, really accomplished, and it is eternal. We can't lose it. Why? Because it was. It didn't depend on us. It wasn't like, you know, Jesus' blood and a little bit of our blood, or Jesus' blood and a little bit of our works. You know, it wasn't because of any of it. It was just Jesus' blood. And because of that, our redemption is eternal. Because of that, we cannot lose it. Another reason why Jesus is worthy... Jesus the Lamb was willing to die for us. I touched on this a little bit last time, but I want to elaborate and show you um, what I was getting at. The Lamb was willing to die for us. So another way in which Jesus as Lamb was different from all the other lambs that had preceded Him that were sacrificed in the tabernacle and temple is that He was a willing sacrifice. And you can flip over to Hebrews 10, and I'm just going to quote here the first part of this, but Hebrews 10, verses 7 and 9, those lambs could not say with Jesus, and I'm just going to give you a part of this, Jesus said this, a body, talking to His Father, a body you have prepared for Me, that is, his, that what He received as He was born of Mary, a body you've prepared for me, and then I have come to do your will, O God. I have come to do your will. Jesus is the only Lamb who was ever willing to die in our place. Because all of the lambs before Him were animals. They didn't have a will. They couldn't say, we couldn't ask them, hey, would you be willing to die for me? Because they wouldn't understand that, and they didn't have a will. But Jesus did understand it. He did have a will. And He had already volunteered for that before He even came to earth. He's the only Lamb willing to die in our place. So look, Hebrews 10, verse 10, and He explains what this means. By this will, we, believers, have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Sanctified, and this is not um, growing in grace sanctification. This is a sanctification where we're set apart to God in salvation. Okay, So it's by Jesus' will, Him saying that I am willing to die in their place. And, and He said, Father, I'm willing to carry out Your plan. And He did. And so in that way, He is different from all other lambs. Another reason why He's worthy. The Lamb gives us confidence to enter the holy place. The Lamb gives us confidence to enter the holy place. 
And, and think here that in that, that Old Testament setting that led all the way up to even through the days of Jesus until the, the veil was ripped in the temple, uh, that the, whole, the, the high priest could only go into the holy place or the representation of it on earth. He could only go in there once a year after he had prepared. He had to you know, kill some animals to, to cleanse himself before he could go in. And he could go in only once. And nobody else got to go in with him. Remember, and even if he died in there because he'd done something wrong and was struck down, you know, they'd tie a rope around his ankle so they could drag him out because they couldn't go in and get him. Nobody else could go in there. And that's the setting here that we're thinking of, that the law, you know, it kept people out. Don't come... Like, think about the mountain where when they came out of Egypt... And God said, you better put a barrier up there because if anybody gets close, they got to die. If an animal gets breaks through and gets close, they have to die. They can't see the the law kept people at a distance. You're not allowed into the holy place because it was pointing us to Jesus. Okay, and so the writer of Hebrews is telling us that we have confidence to enter the holy place. That holy place in heaven. Not not the one in Jerusalem because God was done with that. But think of the one, the greater one that it was patterned after in heaven. We have confidence to enter there. And we do now in prayer. And when we pass on to be with the Lord, then we are, we go into the holy... It's not like He's keeping us out anymore. Why? Look, Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 22. Since, therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place, that, that's the big one, the one in heaven, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, His flesh. And since we have a great priest, Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The law of Moses never could give us that kind of confidence that we could go into God's presence. And there was even an aspect of prayer, not that they couldn't pray, but there was this aspect that if I want to approach the Lord in His temple and not in the holy place, but at least get closer to it. You know, Gentiles could only go so so far. Israelite women and children could go a little bit further. Israelite men could go a little bit closer, and only the priests could go into the holy place, and then the holiest of holies, only the high priest, remember. So, the, the idea is that the law of Moses couldn't give us confidence to say, okay, I'm going to bring my lamb and I'm going to sacrifice it so that I can draw near to the Lord and cry out to Him in His temple. And you know, It couldn't give them the, the confidence that they could go past whatever barrier they weren't supposed to pass. And for none of them, including the high priest except that one day, could not go all the way in. Okay, The, the Old Testament did not give them that confidence. and In fact, it was the exact opposite. Why? Because it couldn't take away their sin. It could only cover it. It couldn't take away sin. You see, so they couldn't come all the way into God's presence. Instead, the law pointed us to the work of Christ, the Lamb of God, 
Only Jesus has taken away our sin. And because of Him, we now confidently draw near to God. And when we are with God in heaven, we will draw near. We won't... Well, yes, we'll have fear because He's God. It's a father fear. It's the respect that we have for Him. Because He's God. He's our Father. But we still, we go in just like a child into, you know, father's study and like... You know, they, the little kid goes in and hops up in dad's lap, kind of thing. It's just, they know that, well, if they do something wrong, they may get disciplined, but this is dad and I'm going to draw near. And we can draw near to him. There's, there isn't anything that's keeping us, you know, a barrier keeping us back. And so we have this confidence to draw near to him. We don't, and, and unlike those Old Testament saints, we don't have to bring an animal to kill. If they wanted to draw near to God and, and his, uh, where His footstool was on earth, if you will, there in Jerusalem in the temple, if they wanted to draw near to God, they had to bring an animal to kill, typically. And there were some other sacrifices they could offer, but they had to deal with their sin first. And that meant an animal had to die. And so you go to the temple and you're leading your animal and, and you take it in there and you kill it. We don't do that. We draw near to God 24-7 anytime we need, anytime we want. And we don't bring an animal. Why? Because God already offered the Lamb for us. The Lamb has been slain for us. And so now we can come in all the time. And so Jesus gives us a confidence that the Old Testament saints couldn't have the confidence to enter that holy place in heaven. Now, so these last two weeks I've, I've been presenting to you this identity of Jesus as the Lamb of God. And have I maybe overblown that identity a bit? And Because, you know, you think about it, you read the New Testament and you read about Him, you know, He's called Jesus, and He's called Lord, and He's called Christ, and, you know... Lamb, okay, yeah, you know, John the Baptist, you know. And then there's a few I've covered, you know, First Peter and others where you know, it talks about him as Lamb and Isaiah 53 and so on, the Hebrews passages. And Have I overblown this idea of Jesus as the Lamb of God? Well, hopefully you, you have an idea already that so far what we've covered that I haven't. But if you're still not convinced... Let's peek into heaven and let's peek into eternity to see if this idea of Jesus as lamb was just something that John the Baptist kind of coined and then it kind of died out with him. Okay, let's see if this idea fades. All right. Well, so when you think about the book of Revelation, you, you might think in terms of, well, one of the things it talks about is how God is going to establish his kingdom. Okay. And so you may think that, well, one of the main names or titles for Jesus in the Revelation is probably King. Okay, so we can go ahead and go to the next slide. So, hmm, only three times that Jesus is called King. Wow, that's a little surprising, right? Okay, well, it's called, uh, well, for one, uh, Son. So that is a common name for Jesus in the Gospels. Son of Man, Son of David, Son of God, right? Only four times in Revelation. And because the book is called the Revelation of Jesus Christ, what about Christ? Maybe that one is used a lot. No, only seven times. What about Jesus? Well, that one's a little bit more. 
14 times. Not a lot, right? And then there are a few others here and there that are like one-offs or maybe two times or something, but far more than any of these, in the Revelation, Jesus is called the Lamb. 28 times. That's significant when you look at the little chart I gave you up there, the different names, that all these names of Jesus that we know in the Gospels and the Epistles, we think, you know, those are big and they're they're important. And we've, we've preached those, right? But last week and this week, we're preaching this name, the Lamb. We're going to see that not only does His identity as the Lamb... Does it not fade? Apparently, in eternity, it becomes the main name. He's still called Jesus, and you've seen all those others. But when we read through Revelation, we find that His primary name or title is the Lamb, which is surprising. Until you think about it, and hopefully after we, go, we finish up today, you're kind of like, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, So we've shown that He is worthy. The Lamb is worthy. And because He's worthy, Jesus will be worshipped as the Lamb throughout all eternity. He will be worshipped as the Lamb throughout all eternity. So turn over to Revelation chapter 5. Last book of the Bible, chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 6 here in just a sec. So, what's going on here in Revelation 5 is that a scroll appears. And think here, you know, we have books today. They had scrolls back then where they would write on on different kinds, like parchment or leather, different kinds of material. And, And they would write, and they would roll that up. And then they would put seals on it at various places to seal it up so that only the recipients could read it, okay? And you'd know if it was somebody had read it before. <clears throat> so they put these wax seals on it. So there's this seal, and it has seven seals. And what, the, what this is about is it's God's plan for, for judgment, for the end. Like, this is how I'm going to wrap things up before the kingdom. And so that's, this is my plan. The only problem... Is that so? You have God on the throne holding this scroll, and no one is found worthy to break the seals. No one. None of the holy angels. Not Michael, you know, powerful angel, Gabriel, you know, the living beast creatures, the four living creatures, the elder, nobody. You know, Abraham's up there, you know, nobody, okay? So John starts weeping. Nobody's found worthy to open, to break the seals. And so verse 5, Revelation 5, 5. And so one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping! Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And so so John's over here, Yes! A lamb can surely rip those seals off. Right? Well, hang on. Because then what happens next? Verse 6. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a, not lion, 
a lamb. A, a lamb standing as if slain. You know, and, and it's like, oh, I know who this is. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was slain for us. A lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God that are sent out into all the earth. And He came, this, this lamb, He came and He took it out of the right hand of Him who sat on the throne. So He goes up to God the Father sitting on the throne who has that scroll, and He takes that scroll from Him. Why? Because He is worthy. The Lion of Judah is worshipped as the Lamb. He is the Lamb with no equal. And notice why He's worthy. Verse 8. And when He, the Lamb, had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain. And you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, and riches, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all things in them I heard saying, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And you know, we grieve some of our brothers and sisters who have gone on before us, some recently. They get to see this. We have, we have to wait. We read about it and we rejoice in it. But we rejoice that they get to see this. They get to see not necessarily this particular scene, but this is what happens in heaven. This is what goes on in heaven. Worshipping the Lamb. And here it tells us why He was worthy. The Lamb is worthy because He purchased us with His blood He's worthy because He was slain for us. The Lamb is worthy. Later on, after the six seals have, or six of the seals have been broken, a great multitude clothed in white robes from every nation, they stand before, for, before God and the Lamb to worship them. Turn over to Revelation 9. We'll start reading verse, verse 9. Revelation 7, verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, 
and they were clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb! And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen! Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in white, the white robes, who are they? And from where have they come? And I said, John, I said, My Lord, you know. So if you're ever in heaven and an angel asks you a question, just, My Lord, you know. <laughs> right? That's the easy way, right? It doesn't work here on earth. Your teachers make you answer, but... Yeah. Angels are are rather gracious. My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne shall spread His tabernacle over them. They shall hunger no more neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd and shall guide them to springs of the water of life, and God shall wipe every tear from their eyes. We grieve. This life, it's broken. This world is broken. We grieve. But one day... God is going to wipe all of our tears from our eyes. And the Lamb will be our shepherd. We will have, and this represents who we are, we will be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We will be clothed in white robes. Just like these who came out of the great tribulation. It says, they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. As I've said before, you know, you know that blood doesn't clean things normally. But the blood of the Lamb does. It doesn't stain. It removes all stains. And do you remember last week, Isaiah 1.18? Our sins were represented by two colors there. Do you remember what those were? Scarlet and crimson. It was like blood guiltiness on us because of our sins. It was like we were, we'd killed somebody, we murdered them, and we were now stained with blood. Well... We're told here, it is Jesus' blood that makes us white as snow. Praise the Lord. That's why He's worthy. Because He has shed His blood so that we can be washed in it, by it. We can be white as snow forever and ever throughout all eternity. And you know your sin. I know my sin. (laughs) How marvelous that sounds, right? Well, let's fast forward to the eternal state where God and the Lamb will be central to our existence, central to our life, and central to our worship. Turn to Revelation 21, second to the last chapter of the Bible. And you may think, well, you know, surely, okay, so early on in heaven, Jesus is going to be called the Lamb. But after a little while, then that will kind of fade and we'll go back to, like, King. Right? 
Well, he will be called king, king of kings, lord of lords. He'll be called Lord, he'll be called Christ, he'll still be called Jesus. But what do we find? This one who will be the center of our worship, he and God and the Lamb. Revelation 21, verse 22. And he's talking here about the new Jerusalem. And I saw no temple in it. Now, what he's meaning there is the Holy of Holies, okay? The holiest place, not the temple. Because remember, we learned in Ephesians, we're going to be the temple, okay? So we'll, there, there'll be a temple. What he means here is the holy place. There's not going to be a Holy of Holies. Why? Because that, that's all gone. The Holy of Holies is where God is, and we're going to be there. Okay, He's going to be there in the midst of us, His temple. So, I saw no temple or, or holy place, Holy of Holies in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, this is amazing, are its temple. That's the, the, the holy place. Our triune God, and the Spirit's not mentioned here because He's, he's promoting, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, Okay. And he's saying, okay, the Lamb, God and the Lamb are going to be the holy place. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it. And again, this is amazing. And its lamp is the Lamb. The the light that we will have in the new Jerusalem the new heavens, the new earth, new Jerusalem, all that, our light will be the Lamb. He's still called the Lamb and worshipped as the Lamb. Now, go one more chapter, chapter 22, the very last chapter of the Bible. Just read the first four verses. So, okay, so the very end of the end, okay, and we're in eternity and we're going on forever and ever, okay? So finally has Jesus... That name, the Lamb, faded. 22.1 And He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God, and guess what? And of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse in the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His bondservants shall serve Him, and they shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. So, no. Jesus as the Lamb, known as the Lamb, is forever. He'll always be known as the Lamb. Why? Because we're going to worship Him for purchasing us with His blood, shedding His blood for us, being slain for us. Right? That's going to be central. He will always be known as the Lamb. So think back with me for a second, just to in our minds, to Luke 2. The babe who was born in Bethlehem, the babe that was born to Mary, his birth moved the angels to worship God. They identified Mary's baby as Savior, Messiah, and Lord. And our Savior who will forever be called the Lamb. The Lamb of God who takes away our sin. He deserves our worship for all eternity. Thousands and thousands of lambs were slain under the law. But they were only shadows and types of 
something greater that was coming. Every one of those lambs was, was pointing forward to a lamb that's greater. A lamb who would have no equal. They were just shadows and types of the reality of the Lamb of God, the true Lamb of God, the one who took away our sins. He is worthy of worship forever and ever. As we come to the Lord's table, I want us to think for a minute on this. Both the Old Testament sacrifices and our Lord's table, part of what they are about is they're both for remembering. They're both for remembering. And, and, you know, it's we know that with the Lord's table. You know, do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said, right? But both were from remembering. And, and there really are there's, there are direct parallels. The Old Testament sacrifices pointed toward Christ, His sacrifice, and our Lord's Supper points back to His sacrifice. But as they, the Old Testament saints, sacrificed lambs, they were reminded of this. Their sins were still with them. Because if they sinned tomorrow, they had to come back with another lamb to kill. Each year, they had to kill more lambs. Remember, their lambs were killed every day. One at the start of the day, one at the end of the day. And then a whole lot in between. And all those Passover lambs and everything. They all reminded our Old Testament brothers and sisters that their sins were still with them. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're reminded instead of the Lamb, the Lamb, who has taken away our sins. That's what we celebrate here in worship at the Lord's table. The Lamb has taken away our sins. And we remember His sacrifice as we remember His death, the breaking of His body, the spilling of His blood. So remember the Lamb who took away our sins.